I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're teaching a series that we began several weeks ago on the Spirit-led life. We've uh, spent a little bit of time over the last couple of uh, services, last, uh, well, what did we start this, three, three or four weeks ago, I guess? Anyway, uh, we've spent a little bit of time talking about the threefold nature of man, and we want to uh, begin there again this morning with 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Verse 23, Paul says, and I pray God, the very God of peace, sanctify you wholly. Now notice the word holy is W-H-O-L-L-Y. He's not saying holy, H-O-L-Y, like to be holy. He's talking about the entirety of man, the whole part of man, the whole makeup of man. And he says, I pray the very God of peace, sanctify you wholly or completely or entirely. Now he's going to tell us what the entirety of man entails or consists of. He said, I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's telling us man has three parts. He is spirit, soul, and body. And notice that he starts from the inside. You don't hear too many people even quote this scripture anymore. You used to hear Brother Hagin say many years ago, he'd say things like, now if you hear people quote this scripture, they'll always start with the body and go to the inside because they're more body conscious. But to be honest with you, I don't hear anybody talking about this scripture anymore. But notice that Paul started from the inside. Because the inside is the real part of man. Your whole spirit, soul, and body. Not body, soul, and spirit. But spirit. Because the spirit of man is the real you. Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 27 says, The spirit of man is the candle of the Lord. The candle of the Lord. Searching all the inward parts of the belly. What is he saying? He's saying God will use your spirit to enlighten you. You know, so much of the church world is deceived because they're looking for God to show them things that they can feel with their flesh. And by that, I mean they're looking for a feeling in many cases. They're trying to identify God with a feeling. And, and folks, I, I, um, I'm not trying to criticize anybody, but I'm not going to hide my eyes from the truth just because somebody may disagree. So much, in my opinion, so much of, much of, well, how do I say this? I, I want to make sure I say this right. Because I, again, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to criticize anybody. But a lot of times, Christians, want to worship God only because of the feeling that it gives them to worship. Yeah, I thought that'd go over real well. <laughs> but it's absolutely the truth. And, and generally, it's, it's Christians who are in a, um, either a babyhood or a, an adolescent stage of spiritual maturity, spiritual development. And they get all excited about worship. But what they get out of worship is just a feeling. Because so many times people are trying to contact God with their feelings. And there are occasions, I've had one example of this in my life, there are occasions where God will do something and it will, uh, it will affect your feelings. It doesn't come to your feelings, but it's your, it, it starts in your spirit and it'll affect your feelings. Man, I love that. There was, there was a time where the Lord was ministering something to my heart and I saw something. I saw it from the inside and all of a sudden it had an effect on my feelings. It was like emotions just washed over me. Man, I like that. But if I go looking for that, I've had that once in 57 years. I go looking for that, I'm going to miss God the rest of the time. And so many times people are looking for things either through their feelings to identify God or they're looking for circumstances which affect our flesh, our bodies. They're looking for circumstances to identify that God did or didn't do something. That's where you get this idea about, well, I'm going to pray and if it's the will of God, he'll open the door. And if it's not the will of God, he'll shut the door. Well, folks, you're talking about doors in a natural realm where Satan can open and shut too. 
You go praying for God to open and shut doors, which the Bible never says that that's the way he leads you. You go praying for God to open and shut doors, the devil will hear your prayer and open a door and he'll have you deceived. So Paul starts from the inside of man. The Holy Spirit directs Paul to start from the inside of man. That's why the Bible says as many as are led by the Spirit, they're the sons of God, not led by their flesh. Well, then we need to know how the Spirit's going to lead us. Romans eight sixteen says the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits, not our bodies, not our souls. He bears witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. So Paul is saying that our spirits, our souls, and our bodies can and should be separated under the Lord by the time he comes. Now, what do we know? We know that the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things become new. Well, he's talking about it, the new birth. He's talking about the born-again experience. When you're born again, what changes? Your spirit changes. Your spirit is made new. You're made a new creature in Christ Jesus. But that new birth experience has no effect on your mind whatsoever. That new birth experience has no effect on your body whatsoever. That's why Paul said by the Holy Ghost to people whose spirits had already been recreated by the new birth. He said in Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 to do something about their bodies and about their minds. He said in verse 1 to present their bodies a living sacrifice. That means control your body in line with your spirit rather than just letting your body do whatever it wants. And in verse 2 he says and be not conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, that's what I want to really want to talk to you about this morning is I want to talk to you about the saving of the soul. Turn with me over to James chapter 1, the saving of the soul. James said something by the Holy Ghost that's really astounding if you don't have a background and a foundation in, in the, the knowledge of spiritual things. James chapter 1, we want to start reading in, uh, <coughs> excuse me. Where do we want to start here? Let's start in, um, well, let's just look at verse 21. James chapter 1, verse 21. <clears throat> Wherefore, now he's writing to Christians, right? He calls them brethren. In chapter 1 and verse 2, he wouldn't call the unsaved brethren, would he? Would he? I know a lot of people say that he is. I know there's some teaching out there that says that James is talking to the unsaved here, but he's not. You would call the unsaved brethren. So he says, in verse 21, he says, Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word. Thank you so much, King James translators. That's just chock full of blessing, isn't it? Lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness. What's he talking about? He's talking about the things of the flesh, the things of this world that hold you back. And instead receive with meekness the engrafted word. Now notice the next phrase. He said, which is able to save your souls. Now some people without a knowledge of spiritual things will say, well, yeah, he, see, he's talking about the saving of the soul. So they can't be saved. Now, that's not what he's saying. He's talking to people whose spirits have been reborn, have been recreated, but their souls have not been affected. Their mind, their wills, and their emotions have not been affected by that new birth experience. He's saying the same thing that, that uh, Paul said in Romans chapter 12. He's saying they still have to do something with their bodies. They still have to do something with their minds. And he said that that 
word is able, the word of God is able to save their souls. He didn't say it automatically happens. He said it's able to save their souls. It's able to save their souls. Now, as I said, uh, have said several times already, he's talking about the same thing as Paul in Romans chapter 12. Uh, You know, instead of referring to it, I guess we better turn because some some folks here may not be familiar with it. Turn with me to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, notice the first two verses. Now, he's certainly talking to Christians in, in Romans chapter 12, isn't he? I mean, the book of Romans is written to the church. And so he writes to them and he says... In verse 1, he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Now, notice he doesn't command them. He doesn't say, do this or else. He does not say, I'm an apostle. You listen to me. I'm over you. You've got to follow my orders. I wish some people in the church would learn the way that Paul dealt with Christians. He said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. In other words, he's saying, this is good for you. I'm trying to tell you something that will help you. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Well, why doesn't God do that for us? Because God has put your body under your control. God has put your body in your charge. It belongs to him. The Bible says both your spirit and your body belongs to God. But he's put it under your charge. You're the one that decides what it does or what it doesn't do. And Paul is encouraging them by the mercy of God that they do something with their body in a specific way in line with God's will. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies. God's not going to do it for you. If it happens, it's going to be because you do it. You present your bodies a living sacrifice. You know the problem with a sacrifice? Something dies. The problem with the sacrifice is something has to hurt in the process. Death is a painful thing. That's why he's beseeching them. He's encouraging them. Folks, if it was a fun thing to do, you wouldn't have to talk people into doing it. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice. That means you're going to have to control things that your body wants to do and not let it do them. That you present your body a living sacrifice. That you present your body a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. He's saying dedicate your body completely unto God, which is your reasonable service. Now this phrase, reasonable service, literally means spiritual worship. You remember in Mark chapter... uh, in. um, John chapter 4, in verse 24, Jesus talking to the the woman at the well of Samaria. He said, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, the charismatics are real good about what they think worshiping in spirit is. Charismatics think that worshiping in spirit means singing in tongues. Well, singing in tongues is a wonderful thing to do, and the Bible says it's a way to give thanks to God. But worship in spirit has more to do with you presenting your body a living sacrifice than it does singing a song in tongues. And I'll go even further to say if you're singing a song in tongues but not offering your body as a, as a living sacrifice, not controlling your body as directed by the word, I'm not sure how that measures out. And that's exactly what a lot of the church is doing. A lot of the charismatics in the church are doing. They're singing in tongues and they think, oh, isn't this such a wonderful thing to do? Well, it is. 
It's a great thing to do. But it's not the first instruction God gave you. He said worshiping in spirit is controlling your body. Now notice in verse 2, how are you going to do that? You're going to do that by doing something with your mind. Because your body just follows whatever your mind allows it to do. He says, and be not conformed to this world. So he's saying the world operates in a certain way, and you're supposed to operate in a different way. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed. The word transformed is the same word that we get our English word metamorphosis from. It's the picture of a, a caterpillar creating a cocoon, a cocoon and, and, and tying himself up in that, wrapping himself up in that, spending some uncomfortable days and coming out a butterfly. That's the transformation process that these words pick, paint the picture of. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The renewing of your mind. The renewing of your mind. Now notice the next thing he says. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove. The word prove means to determine by experience. That you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now folks, God doesn't have three wills. God has one will. It's good, acceptable, and perfect. Now there's no doubt that people who never find the perfect will of God walk in the, the, the edge of his permissive will. No question about that whatsoever. But God has one will. There is one purpose that God intends for your life, and that is his perfect will. And notice it says you'll never get there unless your mind is transformed. You'll never experience that unless your mind is transformed. That's exactly what James is talking about. Lay aside the things of the flesh that keep you from it, that holds you back, and receive with meekness. Be teachable. That's what meek means. The word meekness means. It means be teachable and receive the engrafted word. The engrafted word. The engrafted word. He didn't say listen to, to sermons. He said receive the engrafted word, which is able to save your souls. Which is able to save your souls. Turn with me back to... Um, Let's look at Matthew chapter 4. I want to remind you of something that happened. Here's the way that Jesus lived. Jesus dealt with the devil just like you and I have to. And I want to remind you of how Jesus operated with the devil. What he did when the devil came to him. Matthew chapter 4, it says, Then, after Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan River, verse 1, Then was Jesus led of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. A better translation is he was led of the Spirit into the wilderness where he was tempted of the devil. Now, folks, there's two things you need to know. There are times when God will lead you into the wilderness. In other words, there are learning spots. This was a preparation element. For Jesus. He was already committed to the things of God. He was already anointed of the Holy Ghost. The power of the Spirit was upon him. Yet there was a time of separation where it was just between him and God. That was necessary for him to fulfill the ministry that God had given him. This is before he ever did a miracle. This is before he ever preached a sermon. He goes into the wilderness as he's led of the Spirit. It's, it's interesting to me how that you get some people nowadays that will preach. Um, that the Holy Ghost. If the Holy Ghost is going to lead you. It's always going to be leading you up. It's always going to be leading you into more money, always going to be leading you into something that's more comfortable, and, and all the things that they talk about are really fleshly things. 
There are sometimes the Holy Spirit will lead you to cut, cut off the things of your flesh. Those are wilderness experiences. There are some things that you can only learn through, through adversity. Patience is developed through the trying of your faith. Wouldn't it be great if we could say, okay, Lord, we see patience is important. Please give me patience, and I want it right now. <laughs> Doesn't work like that. You develop patience through going through difficult places. So the Spirit led him to into the wilderness. And in that Spirit-led wilderness experience, that's where Jesus met the devil. The devil will always come to you in hard places. Jesus was no exception. Just because he's anointed of the Holy Ghost, he's got the Spirit of God without measure. He meets the devil just like you and I do, or did. Where he was tempted of the devil, verse 2, and when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights and afterward was a hungered, and when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. The devil will always hit you at your weakest point. You need to be aware of that. Don't be surprised. The people you love the most, that's where you're going to receive the greatest temptation from the devil with. Folks, I, I, I couldn't care less that people that don't know me talk about me. But when people I care about talk about me, that affects me more greatly. Well, a little bit. You understand what I'm saying? The devil always tries to find your soft spot and get you there. He's not going to come where you're strong. That's why it's important to get strong everywhere. That's why the devil left Jesus for a season. The devil, Jesus didn't deal with the devil day after day after day because there was no soft spot for him to come to. There was no soft spot. There was no weakness in Jesus' life for the devil to really get a foothold. That's why it's important for us to grow. That's why it's important for us to renew our minds and present our bodies a living sacrifice. But what happened when the, when the devil tempted Jesus? Jesus is hungry. He's got a body just like you and I do. He's gone 40 days without eating. Sometimes 40 minutes is tough. He's gone 40 days and he's hungry. He's at a weak spot. And so what does the devil do? The devil does two things. Number one, he questions who he is. How many times have you heard Christians say, well, I thought God wanted me to do this, but it's been so much trouble, I'm just not sure. Or they'll say, Pastor Michael, we heard you teach on healing, and, and we did what you said. We reached out in faith and, and received our healing by faith. And, man, I've, had, I've just had more and more trouble since then, more trouble than I've ever had in my life. The doctor has given me a terrible report. Maybe it's not God's will to heal me. Isn't that the same thing that happened with Jesus? Jesus was hungry by his own actions because he's fasting to get alone with God. And the devil came and said, if you're the son of God. Well, wouldn't Jesus know? I mean, wouldn't Satan know? I mean, he was around when Jesus was born of a virgin. I've never heard of that happening before, have you? The devil knows nothing. that has to be God. He knows that has to be him. He knows. But he's questioning Jesus. He's trying to make Jesus doubt who he is. The devil's always going to try to make you doubt who you are. He's always going to try to make you doubt what you have. That's why it's so important to renew your mind to the truth. Because if your mind is renewed to the truth, like Jesus' mind was renewed to the truth, the devil has no place to get in. How do we know that Jesus was re his mind was renewed to the truth? We certainly see that his body was offered as a living sacrifice because he's fasting for the purpose of getting alone with God. 
Notice what he does with a renewed mind. He said, if you're the son of God, command these stones to be made bread. Can I ask you a question before we go further? Could Jesus turn the stones into bread? If not, then it's not a real temptation. What did Jesus say? Jesus answered, in order to experience the will of God, the perfect will of God for his life, he answered and said, it is written. In other words, the first thing he did is quote the Bible. He quoted the word of God. Folks, if Jesus quoted the word of God, shouldn't that be good enough for us too? Then why is that such a hard thing for Christians? Why is there so much controversy in the body of Christ about confession? Isn't confession speaking the word of God? Isn't confession quoting what the Bible says about us or belongs to us? Isn't that exactly what Jesus just did? Well, then where's the the controversy in the body of Christ over confession? Aren't we following Jesus' example? Well, sure we are. Jesus answered and said, it is written. Now, what did Jesus answer? First thing he did was quote the word. But what did he answer? He said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but Jesus is doing two things. Number one, he's saying the Bible is first place in his life. And number two, he's saying the Bible is first place in his life. He's showing that the Bible is first place in his life by quoting the word when trouble comes. But the word that he quotes is the word of God is what I live by, not by natural food, which is what bread represents. The word of God is more important to me than eating. The word of God is more important to me than anything in this natural life. That's what that means, isn't it? He's saying the word of God is most important to him. Now, why would Jesus quote that verse of scripture? There's a lot of other scriptures he could quote. He could quote scriptures about the will of God for his life. He could quote prophecies about who he is and what he's going to do. And he could have quoted scripture about having authority over the devil. Why did he quote that one? I mean, Jesus knows them all. Why that one? Well, you study on that this week and come back next week and we'll tell you. Why that one? Seriously, why that one? Wouldn't he have been better off talking about having authority over the devil? Why didn't he answer the question about being the son of God? That seems to be the real issue. If you're the son of God, then command these stones to be turned into bread. Why didn't Jesus quote scriptures that proves he's the son of God? Could have. Why not? Why this one? Because he's showing the importance of God's word in his life. Why would he do that? Because Psalm 138 verse 2, I think it is, says that God has exalted his word above his name. God has exalted his word above his name. Now, folks, what does that mean to us? Well, it should mean very simply this. If the word of God was first place in Jesus' life and God said that he has exalted his word above his name. Now, let's explain that a little bit further before we go. And that is, above his name, name always represents position and power. Right? I mean, what else could name mean? Above his name. He's exalted his word above his name. He's exalted his word above his position. He's exalted his word above his power. Now, stop and think about how many Christians that you know, how many Christian friends you know, that talk about the power of God instead of the word of God. 
Questions come about healing. Is healing God's will for everybody? What's the, what's the issue that everybody talks about? Well, whether or not God can. You'll find some people that will take a fallback position that, well, you know, sure, all things are possible with God, so of course he can. But we just don't know whether or not he will. Well, how are we going to find out? The Bible says, James said that the prayer of faith saves the sick. That means anything comes through the prayer of faith. You can't pray the prayer of faith with an if in it. Because faith begins where the will of God is known. Not where the will of God is wondered about. So any prayer that any Christian prays or anybody else prays and says, Lord, if it's your will, then, uh, then heal me. That's not the prayer of faith and that won't heal anybody. So how are we going to find out? People talk about the power of God. Yeah, God can. Folks, that has very little bearing on whether or not somebody gets anything in any area, whether it's healing or anything else. Let's just accept the fact God can do anything. But the real question is, what will he do? Well, the Bible says God has exalted his word above his name. It means the word is the issue. What the Bible says is the issue, not what God can do. Why? Because God will only do what his word says he will do. Jesus seemed to understand that because he had a place of priority for the word of God. He said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. By every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. By every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That means your life is supposed to be based on God's word. Jesus said in John chapter 6 and verse 63, real interesting scripture, uh, real interesting chapter. John chapter 6 is a real interesting chapter because he starts saying some things that run people off. Now, you wouldn't think Jesus would do that. Jesus talked, started talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Well, he's talking about being the sacrifice for, for mankind. They're thinking cannibalism. The crowd's thinking, wait a minute, the law of Moses says you don't eat flesh and drink blood like that. No, uh-uh, uh-uh. So it says everybody started leaving him. Jesus answered to them and answered the crowd and said in John chapter 6 and verse 63, he said, it's the flesh, the flesh profits nothing, it's the spirit that, that quickens. He said, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. Now, please understand what he's saying. The words that he spoke were only the words that God told him to speak, which means he's, saying, he's speaking the word of God. He's saying the word of God is spirit and life. Now, if he tells us in Mark chapter 4, verse 4, that man shall live by the word of God, and he's saying the word of God is spirit and life, then what he's telling us is the word of God is the only thing that can feed, fit, and develop your spirit. The word of God is the only thing that can feed, fit, and develop your spirit. Now, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 proves this out. Paul, who I believe is the, I may have said this before. I believe Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. That's an inside joke for those of you that are coming on Wednesday nights. <laughs> Nevertheless, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 says the word of God is full of life and power. Wayne's translation says full of life and power. King James says quick and powerful. Both mean the same thing. Full of life and power. It's sharper than any two-edged sword dividing asunder soul and spirit. Well, if soul and spirit can be divided, they can't be the same thing. And the only thing that can divide between soul and spirit is the word of God. 
What does that mean? That means the only way you can renew your soul, the only way you can save your soul, the only way you can renew your mind is with the Word of God. And the Word of God is the only thing that can fit and feed and develop your spirit. Which means that unless we get the Word of God in our minds, our minds renewed to the Word of God, receive with meekness the engrafted Word, which means once the Word of God starts entering into our mind, as we meditate on it, it becomes a part of our spirit, man. That's when we'll experience the results, which is the perfect will of God. Jesus walked in the perfect will of God. Why? Because his mind was renewed to the word. His mind would not have been renewed to the word if he didn't give the word first place or a place, the place of priority in his life. How many Christians do you know that do that? I know a lot more Christians that complain about why things are happening to them than give attention to putting the word of God first place in their lives. Don't you? Turn with me to uh, Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1. Moses has been the leader of the children of Israel. He stood face to face with God. He went up on the, in the Mount uh, uh, Sinai where the, the lightnings and the thunders and everything was so severe that nobody thought he could live through it. He comes down and his face is shining. The glory of God is upon him in such a way that people are afraid of the guy. They ask him to put a bag on his head. folks, let me tell you what flesh does. Flesh sees the glory of God and says, let's don't have that. Not, wow, how can I get that too? People that aren't interested in God will always put down those who are. They'll always try to get those who are interested in God and the things of God to change themselves instead of coming up to something better that they see. That's why you got so many people complaining nowadays about getting God out of everything in their country. Doesn't matter to them that God in our country would be better. They just don't want to do it, so they don't want to be reminded of it. They want to escape conviction. Joshua now takes over for Moses. Nobody did the miracles Moses has done. Even following, nobody did the miracles that Moses did. Joshua is tapped to take his place. Man, what a tough spot to fill. So God has to speak to Joshua. He has to encourage the guy. Well, I'd need that too, wouldn't you? Notice what God tells Joshua is the key to success. Now, folks, the Bible says God is no respecter of persons. So whatever the key to success for Joshua is going to be is going to be the key to success for you and me. And notice what he says. Joshua chapter 1, verse 8, God says, This book of the law, now the only thing they had was the law of Moses. The five first, What we know of is the first five books of, of uh, the Bible. But it represents all of the word of God. Right? So and since we've got more, since we've got things the Holy Ghost has said to us that, that go beyond the books of Moses, let's paraphrase it and say the Word of God. Because this applies to us too. So this book of the law, or this Word of God, shall not depart out of your mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that's written therein, for then thou shalt have good success, then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Now, folks, I want you to notice a couple of things, first of all, before we get into some of the details. Notice, first of all, it says you're the one that makes your way prosperous. It doesn't even say God will do it. God doesn't say, and then I'll cause all your enemies to fall before you. No, he says, here's how you make your way prosperous. Here's how you make your way prosperous. 
Well, how do we make our way prosperous? You make your way prosperous by doing something related to the word. By a specific position of the word of God in your life and specific action toward that word of God. That's how you make your way prosperous. Well, what are we supposed to do with the word of God? Well, notice it says, first of all, it says the word of God shall not depart out of your mouth. Now, as soon as you speak something, it's gone. So how do you keep it from departing out of your mouth? You keep saying it. He's talking about confession. He's talking about the same thing Jesus just did in Matthew chapter 4 when he was tempted of the devil. Three temptations came to Jesus. Jesus answered the same thing every time. It is written. It is written. It is written. He's confessing the word. So the first thing God tells Joshua. Now here's God telling Joshua how to succeed. Now if you think this won't work for you, okay. But here's what God says the key to success was. He said the word of God spoken continually out of your mouth. And here's the purpose for speaking the word out of your mouth so that you can meditate in it day and night. Now, folks, speaking and meditating are two different things. Because some people just say things from their head and it carries no power, no weight whatsoever. You know as well as I do, you've made promises to people that you had no intentions of keeping and they were just empty words coming out of your mouth. Right? They were words, sounded good, may have made somebody happy to hear them when they were spoken. But they had no meaning behind them. But he's talking about confessing the word of God in a different way. He's not talking about empty words. He's talking about the word of God spoken for the purpose of having an impact on your spirit. Now, I have no doubt in my mind, you know, this is, I, I can prove it to you from different scriptures, but I think you'll agree with me from just the things we've already said. But I have no doubt in my mind that what he's talking about is the renewing of the mind. Now, they couldn't be saved in their day. We can't. They couldn't be born again because Jesus hadn't yet been to the cross. We, ha- we certainly have that opportunity. So he's got to be talking about the renewing of the mind. So even in an unsaved condition, the renewing of the mind would bring success. Can you see that? How much more success would it bring for people who have been born again, whose spirits have been recreated by the power of God and the life of God? So he says... This book of the law, this word of God shall not depart out of your mouth. In other words, keep saying it, that thou shalt meditate therein day and night. One of the definitions of the word meditate is to mutter. We think of meditation as Eastern meditation where somebody's sitting in a lotus position humming. People associate the word meditate, and a lot of Christians get freaked out by the word meditate because they think it's some Eastern religion thing. Well, God's not talking about Eastern religion thing. Eastern religion form, uh, Eastern religion religious forms eastern religious forms of meditation to my understanding have to do with emptying your mind i think a lot of christians have an advantage on that if that was their goal (laughs) a lot of people i've heard from are halfway there to begin with god's not talking about emptying your mind he's talking about filling your mind he's talking about renewing your mind So don't let the word meditate bug you or throw you off. But one of the definitions of the word meditate means to mutter, to speak, to speak. He's saying to meditate or to speak the word of God for the purpose of it having an impact on your spirit. Now, here's where a lot of people make a mistake in faith because they hear that one of the the principles of faith and the two principles of faith are to believe in your heart and say with your mouth. 
And so they look at those principles of faith and they'll think all confession is the same. So they'll take a problem and they'll just start talking to it, talking to it, talking to it. If it's sickness in their body, they'll say, I'm healed, I'm healed, I'm healed, I'm healed, I'm healed. And they think if they can say it a thousand times a day, it's going to make a difference. Well, if they don't let at least one of those thousand times a day where they say they're healed have an impact on settling down, allow it to settle down on the, uh, on their, into their spirits and have an impact on, what it, on the, the inner man about what it really means, it's not going to do any good whatsoever. And that's where you get some people that say, well, I tried that confession stuff and it doesn't work. Well, like Brother Hagin used to say, it won't work for idiots. <laughs> now, I didn't say that. I'm just reminding you that he used to say that. But see, when people don't understand, they think it's just confession. They think it's just the words themselves. No, it's the words that come from a foundation of belief in the heart. Well, how do you get that foundation of belief in your heart? By meditating in the word. That's what God's telling Joshua to do. This word of God shall not depart out of your mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night. You know the story in Mark chapter 11 where Jesus cursed the fig tree? How many times did he speak to it? Next morning it, dried, it was dried up from the roots and dead. How can we get to the place where we can say something one time and that will be it? Here's how you get there. By meditating in the word of God. Confession has two purposes. Number one, to put the word of God in your heart. Number two, for the word of God to come out of your heart. Too many people are trying to make the second part work without doing the first part. That's what God's telling Joshua. He's saying, put your emphasis on the first part. Meditate in the word of God. Confess the word of God for the purpose of getting it established on the inside of you, your spirit man. This book of the law, this word of God shall not depart out of your mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night. So he's saying doing it all the time. Now, folks, you can meditate on the word while you're doing other things. Now, here again is where a lot of Christians get tied up in rules and regulations because they think that God's happy with them if they'll read a lot of the Bible. And so they, they get tied up in this stuff about how many, how many chapters of the Bible are we going to read. You'd be better off by meditating on one scripture than trying to read chapters. Because you can read chapters and it have no impact on you whatsoever, but you can meditate on one scripture and it'll change your life. That's what God's telling Joshua. He's saying, put your emphasis, number one, on the word, number two, on getting the word to, uh, to be a part of your spirit man, the real you. Get it down on the inside of you. Soak it up like a sponge. When Paul told uh, the church to renew their minds in chapter, uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 2, he says, uh, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The word renewal means to reverse by repetition. To reverse by repetition. Reverse your thinking from your, the world's way of doing things by repeating the word of God to yourself again and again and again. That's the same thing God's telling Joshua. See, the principles of God don't change Old Testament to New Testament. This book of the law, this word of God, shall not depart out of your mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night. To what end? That thou mayest observe to do it. That thou mayest observe to do we looked over in James chapter 1 and verse 21 where it says, Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness. Lay aside the things of the flesh that will hold you back. And receive with meekness the engrafted word. The engrafted word means the word meditated on. The engrafted word is the word that comes off of the page through your mouth and becomes a part of your spirit. 
which is able to save your souls. It's able to renew your mind. And then verse 22, we didn't look at verse 22, but it goes right along with it. He said, but be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. See, you can hear the word of God and not do it and you're self-deceived. You can blame the devil all you want to, but it's you that's doing it to you. It's the action of the word of God from the heart that is the act of faith. That's what God's telling Joshua. Isn't it interesting how God knew this well enough to be able to tell it concisely to Joshua back in chapter 1? This word of God shall not depart out of your mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to thou all that's written therein. For then, after putting the word of God first, meditating on it day and night, acting on it, then you make your way prosperous. And then you have good success. The Amplified Translation says of that last phrase, have good success, it says to be able to deal wisely in the affairs of life. Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? If you're going to have good success, you're going to have to deal wisely in the affairs of life. Well, what gives you that wisdom in all of the life's affairs? The knowledge of the Word of God within. The knowledge of the Word of God within. Now, folks, think about this for a minute. Jesus put the Word of God first. How much of the church is putting other things first? How many Christians do you know that put other things first? 90 plus percent? They'll even put good things first. A lot of people say prayer is the most important thing. Folks, prayer is important. But if it's not based on the word, you're not going to be effective in prayer anyway. Oh, worship is the thing. Worship is the thing that's going to bring the presence of God in these last days, people say. I'm sorry, but they're wrong. And as I said earlier, much of the worship is just to create a feeling to begin with. It's the word of God that God honors. God confirms his word with signs following. God doesn't confirm worship with signs following. And just like prayer, if worship is not based on the word, it's going to bring about very little result. The word's supposed to be first place in our lives. How many churches put their own doctrine before the word? In other words, they'll accept or uh, uh, emphasize um, one part of the word that they hold on to, but they'll deny the rest. You've got some organizations that will say, well, the gifts of the Spirit and things of the Spirit, those things have been done away with, so what are they doing? They're exalting their doctrine above the Word. They've made their doctrine first place instead of what the Bible says. Some churches have only one message. Nowadays you hear a lot of things about if you're not a full grace church, you're not preaching the real message of Jesus. Hmm. Well, okay. That's not exalting the word. That's exalting doctrine. Jesus taught a lot about the good things and the blessings of God, but there are other things he said, you better straighten up. That wouldn't qualify in some full grace churches today as the real message of Jesus. So I guess Jesus was just having a bad day when he said those things. As some people would say, have said about me, they'd just say, well, that's just Jesus. The word's supposed to be first place in our lives, folks. It's supposed to hold a place of priority, the place of priority in our lives, no matter what. Your first thought, and here's, the, here's the, how the renewed mind works. I used to think, and, and I, I don't know if this is common or not, 
But I used to think, my goodness, I'll never get to the renewed mind. I'd see Brother Hagin, and he'd been walking with God for 50-something years, and he'd tell some story, and I'd think, oh, dear Lord, I'll never get there. Just never get there. And I thought the renewed mind meant somebody that knew everything about the Bible, because Brother Hagin could quote the thing backwards and forwards, and he came up with scriptures that I thought, who even reads that? And he quotes them, you know. And I used to think, I'll never know the Bible like he does. And I'm still working on it. But I heard him say something one time. He said the renewed mind is not the mind that knows the Bible backwards and forwards, knows everything about it, has it all memorized. He said the renewed mind is the mind that asks first and foremost in every situation, what does the word say? Man, that statement set me free. Because from that point on, it was not, oh, I can't ever get there. It's like, well, I'm doing that now. That's my first thought. What does the word say? I may not know. I may have to go look it up, but that's my first thought. What does the word say? Now, why would somebody do that? There's only one reason, folks, and that is because they've made the decision that whatever the Bible says, that's what they're going to do. And that's the only thing that will bring you success in life. There's there's an old Chinese proverb where two guys are talking, the, the old wise master and the young man. They're walking through the garden, and the young man looks at a tree, a beautiful tree, and he says, when's the best time to plant a tree? The wise old man says, 50 years ago. Folks, that's true spiritually. When's the best time to get the wisdom of God? 50 years ago. In other words, don't waste another minute. Now, we all want overnight success, don't we? I mean, that's a natural thing. But boy, that's a rare occurrence, if ever it happens. Success, good success in life doesn't come as a result of praying one prayer and God saves you, pulls you out of the fire and all of a sudden changes things around. Good success comes from making your life, building a life on the foundation of God's word. And it comes little by little by little. Now, you may be in situations, dire situations where you need God to pull you out and he will. But he's not, he doesn't expect you to live from crisis to crisis. That's the way the country's doing. Folks, that's the spirit of the world. Have you noticed we're on, it used to be about jobs? No, it's about guns now. It's got to be about guns. And then after that, it's going to be the debt ceiling again. Somebody sent me a story about the debt ceiling the other day. I loved it. He said, the raising of the debt ceiling is like this. This has nothing to do with my message, but you need, you need a break from spiritual things. So I'm going to tell you a joke. <laughs> The debt ceiling is like going to work one day and finding out your sewer is backed up and your house is full of sewage. What do you do? Do you raise the ceiling? Or do you get rid of the sewage? I thought, I love that. That is so good. I think that's the way a lot of people are living their lives spiritually. They're not trying to get rid of the sewage. They just want God to lift the ceiling. Let me tell you a story. I know I'm I'm out of time. I'll stop here. We'll pick up with this later. Um, One of the most outstanding stories I ever heard Brother Hagin tell. He said he was in a church having a meeting, and uh, uh, he had said something, uh, talking about the love of God, talking about walking in love. And he, uh, he used the scripture over in First John. I think it's First John chapter 3. It says, if you, any man that hates his brother is a murderer and has no eternal life abiding in with him. 
in him. And so at, uh, at lunch, he was out with the pastor and his wife, and, and uh, his wife was there too. And so she leaned over the table. She said, Brother Hagin, you've got me in trouble. And he said, no, sister, you were in trouble before I got here. The light of God's word just showed it up. <laughs> and so he says, what's the problem? She said, well, you said this morning that if you hate your brother, you're a murderer. Now, when Brother Hagin was preaching, he just said kind of off the cuff, and he said, that means mother-in-law too. So he said, so what's your problem? She said, well, when you said that verse this morning, you said, and that means mother-in-law too. And he said, yeah, I plead guilty to that. She said, looked him right now. She said, I hate my mother-in-law. Brother Hagin said, well, then that means there's no eternal life in you. That means you're not saved. He just poured it on. That means this. It means that. It means, you know, there's no heaven for you. You know, the, all this kind of stuff. He could see on the look on her face that he's going to have to bail her out now. Because she starts making excuses. She said, well, Brother Hagin, I'm an ordained minister. He said, I don't care. I don't care if 65 organizations have ordained you. If you hate your mother-in-law, you're, you're, there's no spiritual life. You're spiritually dead. She said, but I was born in a parsonage of a full gospel minister's house. He said, I don't care where you were born. I don't care if they you know, pulled you out on the altar. <laughs> so whatever she'd say, he'd always answer it back, you know. Finally got her in such a place where she was just, you know, almost frantic. What am I going to do now? And he said, sister... He said, he knew what her problem was, so he just, he decided he was going to help her. He said, sister, let me help you out. He said, here's what I want you to do. He said, I want you to look across the table at me right in the eye and say, I hate my mother-in-law. And when you do, check down on the inside of you and see what's happening. So she leaned over and she said, I hate my mother-in-law. He said, what's happening on your, down on the inside of you? She said, something's scratching me. He said, well, of course. He said, that's the love of God that's trying to get your attention. See, the Bible says the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. That happens at the new birth. A lot of people think, well, we need a baptism of love. No, you don't. You already got the love of God on the inside of you. Well, we need a revival of love. No, you don't. You need to develop what you got. See, so many times people are looking for something they already have. So she said this. Well, she said, well, so what am I going to do? He said very simply, he said, Treat her like you do love her because you really do. He said it a little different. He said, treat her as if, uh, treat her like you would treat her if you did love her because you do love her. In other words, he's saying, he's saying no matter how you feel, act like you love her. Well, a couple of nights later, uh, at the end, after the service was over, um, she said, the pastor's wife said, Brother Hagen, I'd like to invite you over to our house from, for some fellowship and refreshments. She said, I've invited my, my mother-in-law and, and my husband's family, and they're going to be there along with some other people from the church. Would you come? And so he said, yeah, I will. And, and uh, after the next day, uh, at the service the next day at lunch, she said, you know, Brother Hagen, thank you so much. She said, I, I don't hate my mother-in-law. They're lovely people. I, I don't agree with them on everything, but they're lovely people. I, I've just been doing wrong. So she straightened things up. Well, by the end of the week, this is just a day or two later, by the end of the week, Brother Hagen got a call from the pastor's wife just before the service. They had a child that was uh, uh, epileptic. And there would be these minor seizures or minor uh, symptoms or something like that that would tell them that one of these seizures was coming on. And, and boy, the, the doctor said, I've never seen anybody with, that has seizures like this. And so one of these symptoms had begun or whatever. And so she called Brother Hagen at the hotel they were staying at and said, would you come by on your way to the service and pray for my son? 
because he's starting to go into one of these things. And if it would, if you could do that, we would really appreciate that. So he said, yeah, it's on the way. So I will. He said on the way, they were driving in the car on the way to the, the uh, pastor's house. And he said, the Lord spoke to him. He said, it was so real to me. He said, like somebody's in the back seat. He said, as a matter of fact, I turned around to see, was anybody back there? He said to him, it seemed audible, but he asked his wife, did she hear anything? And she didn't hear anything, so it couldn't have been audible, but it was that strong on the inside of it. And the, the voice of the Lord said, when you get there, don't pray for the child. He said, but tell the mother. In the Old Testament, I told my people if they would walk in my statutes and keep my commandments, that I would take sickness away from the midst of them and the number of their days they would fulfill. Paraphrasing that in a New Testament language, tell the mother to say, Satan, I'm walking in love. That is the law of the new covenant, isn't it? A new law, law, Jesus said in John chapter 13, verse 34, a new law I give unto you that you love one another, even as I've loved you. So he said, say to the mother, paraphrasing in the New Testament language, say to the mother, Satan, take your hands off my child, I'm walking in love. Well, Brother Hagin said he got there. And this child had progressed from the symptoms into starting this, this big grand mal seizure, whatever they called them, and uh, that type of thing. And so he told the mother exactly what the Lord told him. The Lord told me not to pray for this child. The Lord told me to tell you under the old covenant, I said to my people, if they'd walk in my commandments and keep my statutes, that I'd take sickness from the midst of them and the number of their days they would fulfill. So you're to say, Satan, take your hands off my child. I'm walking in love. Well, he hadn't got those words out of his mouth that the pastor's wife turned around, wheeled around, turned and looked at that child and said, Satan, take your hands off my child. I'm walking in love. He said, as fast as you could snap your fingers, that thing stopped instantly. Instantly. Now, some people hear that story. And and, and when I was working with Brother Hagin, he would tell that in different meetings. People would hear that story and they'd talk afterwards and say, oh, wasn't that wonderful? The power of God, isn't that wonderful? She took authority over the devil and they missed the whole point. And then some people will say, well, Pastor Michael, or Pastor or Brother Hagen, I wish that would work for me, but I'm not walking in love. Well, neither was she a couple of days before. Neither was she. Now, what did she do? The thing that made the difference for her is what she, she took what Brother Hagen said, the love of God is shed abroad in her heart. She began to think on that. She began to meditate on that. She began to say that. And saying that enabled her to act like she loved her mother-in-law because she wasn't feeling a thing toward love. Well, she was feeling something, but it wasn't loving. But it was the meditating on the word and then the acting on the word that brought her the victory with her child. I wonder how many things God's getting the blame for letting happen. For allowing to happen among Christians and in their lives. When it's their refusal to act on the word that's causing the door to be wide open. When it's their refusal to put the word of God first place. To renew their mind to the word. To meditate on it. Build a foundation of God's word on the inside. So that when they act, take action. It could bring the blessings and the deliverance of God. I wonder how much of that stuff God gets blamed for. Seems to me like a whole lot. Seems to me like a lot of Christians are blaming God for things that they could fix if they'd just be doers of the word. Folks, it's meditating in the word that will bring you victory. It's meditating in the word that will bring you victory. Now, I can't always tell you how it's going to come. I know when the first summer I started working with Brother Hagin, we went on the road and, and we were... Um, it was in the summer of 1981. 
and um, we were on a, a campaign up in the northeast, and it was a series of one-night stands all over the place. So we were. What that means to the crew is that you're setting up and tearing down day after day after day. You're you're setting up in the afternoons, tearing down at the end of the service, driving somewhere overnight or the first thing in the morning, and setting up, doing it all over again. So by the by the end of a couple of weeks, you're like a zombie. At least I was. And during this time, really before it started, the Lord had spoken to me. I heard a voice on the inside. One of the first times I'd ever heard the Lord speak to me this way. He said, seek my face. Okay. I got excited that he spoke to me. And then after it was over, I thought, how did he do that? I didn't know. So I started doing everything I could think of to seek the word, to seek him, seek his face. So I'm taking every spare minute. I'm getting a concordance. I, I, I got a copy machine of the, of the concordance, the pages that, that the word seek is used. You know how many times the seek is used in the Bible? I mean, it's one of those three-pager things. So I'm going through the scriptures. I'm going through and I'm writing down the ones that, that apply and, and, and that kind of stuff. Some of them, you know, didn't, didn't make any sense or didn't, didn't mean anything because it's talking about somebody looking for somebody else. And so you take the ones out. And so I wound up with a, with a, a, a notepad, a yellow pad, worth of, I don't know, five or six pages worth of scriptures. So I'm going through those things every day. I'm carrying the thing with me everywhere I go. And it was a busy time, busy time. But I'm looking at that thing, and I'm, I'm sitting in services. You know, while Brother Hagin's uh, ministering, I'm sitting in the back, you know, during the, during the message, and I'm going through this thing. I'm not really paying attention to what he's saying. I'm going through this thing because God's told me to seek his face. And I can't for the life of me figure out how you do that. I've got certain things to say, you know, where God said, where David said, I'll seek you early. Well, okay, I'm up early anyway. That's okay. That's easy enough to do. I've got other things where it says, I'll seek him late. And I'm up late too. So that's working too. And, and for the life of me, I could not come to the realization of, Lord, what are you trying to get across to me? Well, this went on for about a month. And, uh, and as a result, um, well, I said it was the first summer. It wasn't summer of 81. It was the summer of 82. I'd been working for Brother Hagin for a year. But anyway, um, I came to the place. One of the scriptures that, that did make sense to me was in uh, uh, Romans chapter 8, uh, Hebrews chapter 8. I'm sorry. Let me read this to you. Here's one of these scriptures that did seem to stand out to me, but not like none of the others applied. It was just one of those that, you know, was important. Now I've got the wrong scripture. Um, huh? You know, it's a funny thing how you things get away from you. Thank you. You've heard me preach this before, haven't you? There it is. Hebrews chapter eleven six. Notice it says this. It says, But without faith it's impossible to please him. For they that cometh to God must believe that he is, and he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Well, okay, I've got a blessing of seeking him, but I still don't know how to seek him. So it was one of those that I thought, okay, well, this is good, this is good, but still, I, I, I don't know what I'm doing. And I'm asking God every day, Lord, how do I seek you? How do I seek you? You told me to seek your face. I don't know what that means. So I'm studying the word, I'm praying, I'm doing everything I know to do, and I'm, I'm, coming, I'm not getting any answers from him. He's not telling me anything. But we got back from this, this crusade trip, and I'm walking up the back steps, in the old office building that they had. They used to have our offices on the second floor in the administration building before they built all the new stuff and all that kind of thing. 
And so I'm walking up the back steps, and I'm in mid-step going up those, those, those single run stairs. I'm in mid-step, and all of a sudden, Hebrews 11:6 comes alive to me. I saw it. I, I, literally, I saw something on the inside of me. I've been quoting it for a month or so, along with some others, but I saw something. I saw that all of it, I mean, as quick as a flash, I saw that I've been doing what you do to seek him. I've been reading the word, I've been confessing the word, and I've been praying. That's how you seek his face. And all the time I've been praying, Lord, how do I seek your face? I don't know what to do. I'm reading your word, I'm confessing the word, I'm praying, but I don't know how to seek your face. And I was doing it and didn't even know I was doing it. And I realized in mid-step, the Bible says that God will reward those that diligently seek him. He will reward those that diligently seek him. And as fast as you can snap your fingers, faster, instantaneously, I realized God's rewarding me. I'm in line for a reward. I didn't start off looking for a reward. But I realized I was in line for a reward. Now, folks, um, this may not make any, any sense to you or, or any difference to you, but only those that were there would really understand this. Brother Hagin grew up into the Depression. So minimum wage, in Brother Hagin's eyes, was way overpaid. Brother Hagin hired me. The rest of the group there didn't want me to be hired. Brother Hagin came to me one day and he said, hey, you want to travel with us? And I said, yeah, I'd love to. Okay, well, go see so-and-so over in the office and such and such. Well, I went over there to see him and, and I, I showed up and, and they said, who are you? I said, I'm Mike Webb. Brother Hagin told me that I was going to travel with him this summer. He told me to come see you. They said, we don't know you. Get out of here. So I left. Well, this is none of my business. I didn't go to Brother Hagin and say, hey, wait a minute, this happened. So three or four days go by. And Brother Hagin sees me in healing school, and he said, did you go over to the office? And I said, well, yes, sir. He said, they get you set up? And they said, no, they ran me off. He said, what do you mean they ran you off? And they said, they didn't know me, didn't know what was going on. They told me to get out of their office. He said, oh, okay, well, I'll fix that. Well, that's what he told me before. I don't know what to expect. So a couple of days goes by, and he says, go back and see them. So I went back, and I sat, saw them, sat down in their office, and they said, oh, yeah, we know you. <laughs> yeah, you lousy bunch of people. So anyway, they got me set up. But in the process, she says, well, what are you going to get paid? I said, I don't know. I thought that's why I'm coming to see you. I don't know. She said, well, Brother, I didn't say anything about what, what you're going to get paid or even if you were going to get paid. Are you supposed to get paid? And I said, well, I don't know. Well, I didn't get paid. I didn't get paid that summer. I went for free. Now, I was happy as a clam. I loved what I was doing. Didn't bother me a bit, but I didn't make a dime. So at the end of the summer, Brother Hagin said, well, he said, uh, go talk to so-and-so. I, I'm, uh, we'll see if we can keep you on. Because I didn't know. At the end of the summer, I thought, well, okay, I guess that was it. I just signed on for the summer and the crusades and stuff, so I didn't know what was going to happen. So anyway, after that, um, a couple of weeks went by, and, and uh, Brother Hagin said something to the effect of, yeah, you need to go see so-and-so. They asked me today if you're supposed to still be working for us. And I said, yeah, I've been kind of wondering that too. You know, because if I don't work for them, I've got to get a job. But I don't want to get another job because I like what I'm doing. It would be kind of nice to make some money at it, though. So anyway, I went back to see him, and, and they, they said, well, um, Brother Hagin told us that, that he wanted to hire you on, but he didn't tell us what to pay you. 
And so I said, okay, well, I don't know if I can do this because, uh, you know, you got to have a certain amount of money to live. I got rent. I got things like that. I've been going for um, the, the summer months without anything anyway. I, I, I got to know, am I going to have enough money or am I going to have to get another job or something? T- somebody tell me something. So anyway, Brother Hagen said, well, pay him whatever they're paying the face creation group. Well, face creation group had been making the same thing for about five years. They were the lowest paid employees at the, at the ministry. Now, I'm part of that group. Glad to have the job. Don't get me wrong. I'm glad to have the job. But within just a couple of months, they got raises. So now I am the single lowest paid employee at Kenneth Hagin Ministries. That'll make you feel like a dream. So I'm making less money at Kenneth Hagin Ministries than anybody. And all of a sudden I get a revelation. I'm in line for a reward. Within two weeks' time, folks, they took me from being the lowest paid employee to Kenneth Hagin Ministry to being the top 10% of pay at, the, at Kenneth Hagin Ministries. Now, you tell me that doesn't have something to do with the Word of God? You get a raise at Brother Hagin's place, that's got to be God. <laughs> People who know anything about him know what I'm talking about. Now, how'd that work? Can I... Somebody explain to me, how'd that work? Is there any explanation other than the word of God? Now, God didn't tell me, I'm going to give you a raise. God told me, seek my face. He didn't tell me, study on money. He didn't tell me, study on prosperity. He didn't tell me to believe him for a raise. He told me, seek my face. Isn't there a scripture in the Bible that says, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you? And aren't the things that are referred to inclusive of money and and resources? I wonder if that could be really true. (laughs) Folks, it worked for me. It worked for me. That goes back to the Chinese proverb. When's the best time to plant a tree? 50 years ago. Let me close with one last scripture. Turn with me over to Colossians chapter 3. I want you to see this. Colossians chapter 3. I never really got to the things that I wanted to say this morning. So I'll just have to trust that what I did say was what the Holy Ghost wanted me to say instead of what I had in mind. Notice Colossians chapter 3. Well, let's just read verse 16. Let's just pull verse 16 out of the middle and read that. Notice what it says. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. There's only one way that's going to happen, folks, and that's if you let it happen. Now, what let it means doesn't mean just sit back and all of a sudden it'll happen. It means you're going to have to determine as an act of your will to meditate on the word and make it a part of your spirit. That's what it means, the word of Christ dwelling in you richly. It means meditating the word, create a foundation of the word of God on the inside. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. The word of God will give you wisdom. That's how you know who has it. That's how you know who's living their lives based on the word. Christians ought to be the wisest people in the world. The least gullible of anybody. 
I hate to get political here, but Christians shouldn't be taken in with political promises. Christians ought to be able to see through to what's really happening, no matter who they are or what position they say they take. If the church was operating in wisdom and voting according to that wisdom as received from the Bible, we wouldn't be in the mess we're in as a country. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. So without going into a great deal of detail about this, you have to see that he's talking about the word of God dwelling in your spirit. Because he's talking about singing spiritual songs. Spiritual songs can only come from your spirit. That's why they gave him that catchy title. Spiritual songs. So he's got to be talking about the word of God in your spirit, right? He's got to be talking about the result of meditating in the word, because that's the only way the word of God becomes part of your spirit. That's what God told Joshua. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Folks, the spirit-led life is a life founded on the word. A spirit-led life. Let me compare another scripture to you. Compare this to Ephesians chapter 5. Colossians and Ephesians are parallel letters. They were written at the same time from, by Paul in jail. He wrote the same things to the Colossians he wrote to the Ephesians. He just gave more detail to the Ephesians. Notice what he says in chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5, in verse 18. He said, and be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, what's the evidence of being filled with the Spirit? Now, he's not talking about the experience of being filled with the Spirit. He's talking about a Spirit-filled life. Big difference in being filled with the Spirit and speaking in tongues and living a Spirit-filled life. So notice what he says in verse 19. Here's a Spirit-filled life. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and, spirit, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. So you can see Colossians 3.16 and Ephesians 5.18 and 19 are the same things. He calls to the Colossians, he says, it's the word of Christ dwelling in you richly. To the Ephesians, he says, it's the spirit-filled life. So the word-based life and the spirit-filled life have to be the same thing. Don't they? The word-based life. And the spirit-filled life have to be the same thing. And they both exemplify something coming from your heart. And notice both of them have to do with speaking. Both of them have to do with what you say. Both of them have to do with what you say. Folks, there's nothing more important than putting the word of God first place in your life through meditation. By meditating in the word of God is how you make the word of God a part of your spirit. And that gives you a foundation to speak and act so that the blessings of God can be yours. They're not going to come any other way. It's not going to happen any other way. Yeah, well, I just believe that when God got ready, he was going to do this, that, or the other. Well, you keep hoping for that. Or you can do it God's way. God's way always works. Put the word of God first place in your life. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it's true. Thank you for the privilege that we have to live by the Spirit. Led by the Spirit impressed upon by the Holy Ghost, directed by the Word of God, 
Father, help us to realize how important it is. Reveal to each and every person that's in this place and every person under the sound of my voice. Reveal to each and every one of them where they need to apply the word of God in their lives. Show them, Father, that it's not some blessing coming from the sky that's going to make the difference in their life, but rather the application of your word. Show them, Lord, what your word says about their situation. And as they meditate on it, Father, I thank you that it grows and produces fruit. And the fruit that it produces is the blessing of deliverance, the blessing of healing, the blessing of well-being, the blessing of peace according to their need. Father, we love you. I thank you so much for leading me by the Holy Ghost. The leading of the Holy Ghost, the importance of the word of God in my life, Father, has made it's redeemed my life from destruction. It's caused me to know your perfect will for my life. Just as it will for anybody and everybody else. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for being so good to us. Thank you that your word has the answer for everything that we come up against. Thank you for the privilege to live above this natural realm. But rather be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We love you, Lord. We thank you for all of the wonderful things that you've done for us. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Let's all stand together. Don't forget prayer school tonight at 5 o'clock in the, in the fellowship hall and uh, healing schools tonight at 6. If you can come back and be with us, we invite you to do so. Turn around and shake somebody's hand and say, I'm led by the Spirit, and so are you.